Hello and welcome to this second episode, the first episode of this week of the Big Recon on Sports podcast. I am your host, I am the Big Recon, and today is Tuesday, September the 8th, 2020. Um, as I promised tonight, we're going to go through the 2020 trade deadline. I'm going to go through who I thought were the big winners of the trade deadline. And then, of course, I'll hit on the Mets. See, I got a different hat on tonight. Um, and then I'm going to go through my impression of the Mets this last week or so. And then I'm going to get into some historical things that have gone on in baseball in the last week. But I would be remiss if I didn't start with this. Baseball is now mourning the passing of another Hall of Famer. Longtime Cincinnati, I'm sorry, St. Louis Cardinal. Uh, leadoff man and the man who had the most stolen bases in history when he retired. Lou Brock passed away at the age of 81. Uh, another Mets connection as Keith Hernandez was mentored by Lou Brock when he made it to the major leagues with the Cardinals in the mid-70s. Um, Brock was the quintessential leadoff man this side of Ricky Henderson. If you compare their numbers, they have over 2,000 stolen bases between the two of them. The To lose Seaver as I talked about in last Thursday night's episode, and then to lose Lou Brock in a week, a lot of people have been mourning people who were basically their childhood. Um, so, didn't want to start on a sour note tonight, but unfortunately with what happened, we have to. Um, so, now I'm going to get into the trade deadline. I'm going to go through who I thought were the biggest winners. And the funny thing is, MLB Network and I both believe the people that I'm talking about were the big winners overall. Um, so I'm going to start from my buddies Alex and Tone, who thought these guys were going to be very active when we did our halfway point episode the other night. I'm going to start with the biggest winners of the trade deadline, the San Diego Padres. Now, I'm not going to get into specific deals. I'm just going to talk about the haul that each team got, and then I'm going to break down what I think uh, happened or was going to happen. San Diego acquired right-handed pitchers Mike Clevenger, Trevor Rosenthal, Austin Adams, Dan Altavia, and Taylor Williams. They also acquired first baseman designated hitter Mitch Moreland. They acquired catchers Jason Castro and Austin Nola and outfielder Greg Allen. Now, normally on a trade deadline, if you get that kind of haul, you're immediately the big winner of the trade deadline. But here's what San Diego did that a lot of people aren't talking about, and I saw... When I saw who they got, I then looked at who they went and had to give up. But here's the thing. They didn't lose a lot of the major pieces in their farm system. They were able to get through this deadline and make every single piece of their team better without giving away the crown jewels. Um, I, with the Indians, they gave up their... I, I want to say 3rd, ninth, and 11th greatest prospects. So they kept their top two. They kept number four, five, six, seven, and eight. Nine, they kept 10, and 11 went. So to do what they did to acquire Mike Clevenger, who is a top-of-the-rotation starter, is a phenomenal deal to add to Hosmer, Machado, Tatis, until Eric Hosmer got hurt. So now San Diego's getting bitten by the injury bug like every other team has been bitten by the injury bug so far this year. Um... So that was the biggest haul. And listen, San Diego's in it to win it this year. I think they're a year early. Um, I believe that they will get there. I think their starting pitching, adding Clevenger, was the big move. Um, I like Mitch Moreland. I think Castro and Nola are 
uh, competent catchers to platoon. I, I love Austin Hedges, who we'll talk about in a minute when he went to Cleveland. Uh, I think Greg Allen is a nice depth piece. Adding guys like Rosenthal, Adams, Altavia, and Taylor Williams to that bullpen are going to make San Diego that much better and that much tougher in the postseason. But right now they want to catch the Dodgers. Hate to break it to them. Nobody is catching the Dodgers. So to make those moves, get the big pieces they did, and not really sacrifice the future, San Diego gets an A-plus from me. What a great trade deadline for them. Listen, they're a young, exciting team. I hope they get in. I hope it's not at the expense of my Mets, who are currently getting smoked, but I hope they get in. Because I think Tatis would be fun to watch on that stage. Machado had a really good postseason run in 2018 with the Dodgers before losing in the World Series. The Miami Marlins, and let's just lay this out here now. The Marlins got the best player in Starling Marte. Do I think they'll re-sign him? I don't know. Um, Jeter's a little tough to figure out. He gave away the store with Yelich, Ozuna, and... um, Stanton for basically peanuts. Most of those peanuts coming from the New York Yankees and a dumpster fire. But they got the best player available, a best position player available, excuse me. Mike Clevenger was the best pitcher available. Second best if Cincinnati would have gotten rid of Trevor, uh, Trevor Bauer. But the best position player available was Starling Marte, and he is now a Miami Marlin, and he's winning games for him. So, do I think the Marlins make the playoffs? I don't know. They've had a problem with the Mets this year. they got to play them again yet. Can't beat Jacob DeGrom for whatever reason. Great. Beat him again, Jake. Uh, but, no, this was a great year, a great move in a very surprising year. These guys weren't supposed to get out of the cellar in the National League East. And here they are. They're in the playoffs. So, let's give a big tip of the cap and a, and a round of applause to the Miami Marlins. Go for it when you got to go for it, gentlemen. Great move. The Cincinnati Reds are next. And I actually wrote this one down. I didn't memorize all this. Uh, acquiring Archie Bradley, the right-handed pitcher from Arizona, and Brian Goodwin, a um, outfield depth piece. Listen, Archie Bradley is going to really rein in that bullpen, which has been Cincinnati's Achilles heel. They have a great starting rotation. Amir Garrett's a nice piece, too. The problem with Cincinnati is the rest of their bullpen has been unreliable at best. Uh, Bradley averaging over 10 strikeouts per nine innings. He's going to be a big piece. Um, Listen, Bradley helps the staff immediately. Like I said, Goodwin adds the depth. Cincinnati's not out of this thing. A, A good run and Cincinnati's right back in it. The Phillies. The Phillies. I can't stand Philadelphia. Uh, right-handed pitchers, Brandon Workman, Heath Hembry, David Phelps, and David Hale. When you have a 9 ERA in your bullpen, you have no choice but to go out and get pieces. David Phelps, of course, pitched with the Yankees when Joe Girardi was there, so he it's a known commodity. Brandon Workman was very good in Boston last year, and he's pitched okay in Philadelphia. Heath Hembry was a part of that staff that got smoked 14-1 to by the Mets the other night. Uh, I haven't seen David Hale pitch yet. I will say this. They added pieces they definitely needed. Uh, Philly's bullpen has been atrocious, almost as bad as the Mets. If they want to make a run, they needed to add this depth, and they did just that. 
So kudos to the Phillies. I don't like to give that very often. Sorry, guys, this hat's kind of tight on my head. I don't like to give kudos to the Phillies very often, but this was a big one. Um, so that's a huge move for them. Cutting in the middle for all basketball player, basketball fans that listen or watch the podcast, Billy Donovan will not return to the Oklahoma City Thunder. I'm going to do a basketball wrap-up once we get past the finals. Right now, I just it came across breaking news on my phone, so I figured I'd let you guys know that. Then we go up to Toronto. Did anybody see what Toronto did to the Yankee bullpen last night? They put up a 10 spot in one inning. Toronto added left-handed pitcher Robbie Ray, right-handed pitchers Taiwan Walker and Ross Stippling, uh, first baseman outfielder Daniel Vogelbach, and infielder Jonathan VR from the Marlins. Toronto is another team. Because I don't think anybody's catching Tampa. Tampa's going to be a problem. But Toronto is in second place in that division right now. They're playing the Yankees uh, in Buffalo, which I think is great, by the way, uh, this week. And they added the pieces they needed to make their lineup whole. With Caven Biggio and Bichette and Bo Bichette and, of course, Big Vladdy Jr., Toronto is young and ready to win. The move that no one's talking about anymore is they brought in Hunt. Hyunjin Ryu from the Dodgers to anchor that staff. Adding Robbie Ray and Taiwan Walker to that pitching staff to go with Stippling, that's huge. Toronto is in this thing to win it, and they know they have a small window because those guys aren't really making much money right now. So they can bring in the big pieces to get them where they need to go. And I think this team can get in that playoff run and that lineup when, when healthy. With Telez and Shaw and Vladdy, and Biggio, and Bo Bichette when he becomes healthy. And Vogelbach in there, and Jonathan VR, who I think is going to pay immediate dividends with his speed. That is a tough, tough lineup to have to navigate. And if you have Taiwan Walker and Robbie Ray and these guys in the bullpen is, is performing, that's they're going to be a tough out come the playoffs. So Toronto, another great trade deadline move, couple of moves, gets them, I think, one step closer to being a playoff team. The Cleveland Indians, who made the huge move with San Diego, acquired Austin Hedges, the catcher from San Diego. I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to say this. First, I'm losing the hat, by the way. It's a little too tight in my head. But I bought it at City Field last year during the 69 championship celebration, so I wasn't going to get rid of it. Um, Austin Hedges is a huge move for them. Roberto Perez was injured. Having him now is you have a big league proven backstop to go with one of the most talented rotations in all of baseball with Bieber and McKenzie and Plesek, who's an idiot. Uh, and um, and those boys there. Brad Hand's been really good at the back end of games for them. The Indians are in it to win it. They are one of the better teams in the biggest dogfight race that we're going to have, which is the American League Central. And now they've put all the chips on the deck, all the chips in the middle, and said, let's go for it. They also added in first baseman outfielder Josh Naylor, right-handed pitcher Cal Quantrill, who goes right into that bullpen, shortstop Gabriel Arian, infielder Owen Miller, right-handed pitcher Joey Cantillo. So Cleveland got three of San Diego's top 20 prospects in the Mike Clevenger deal. Big move. And a major league catcher immediately, as I mentioned, with Austin Hedges. Here is where Indians fans should be worried. If Arian starts getting time this year and in spring training next year, 
I think, and my buddy Nick, who has been on the podcast before, I have mentioned him before, I think we're going to see the end of the Fernando, um, I'm sorry, Francisco Lindor era in Cleveland, which would be absolutely horrible. Frankie Lindor is a generational talent. He should stay where he was. I firmly believe the Indians should re-sign him. I don't think they're going to have the money, and I don't think they're going to do it. But they should try and find a way. They got a lot of money coming off the books. The end of this year, I say they give it to Francisco Lindor, but that's just me. Um, but if they don't do it, he they now have someone they can look to for the future to play shortstop. Um, they have the um, the bullpen help they needed. And they got some minor league depth, which is what Cleveland has built their winner on for many, many, many years. So all in all, the Indians, another great trade deadline. But what it turns into in the future could tell you if it's not going to be a great trade deadline. And finally, for the boys in Chicago, uh, for Tone especially, because I know Tone's the uh, Cub fan. The Cubs bring in D.H. Jose Martinez. They bring in Ken, Cameron Maben. Left-handed pitcher Andrew Chafin. Left-handed pitcher Josh Osich. As Tone mentioned, the issue with the Cubs right now is the bullpen. He liked the Jose Martinez move because it wasn't didn't cost him much. Uh, Cameron Maben, who was in his third stint with the Tigers, um, he comes over and adds depth. Now they're still they have some injury issues as well. Adding the depth in the outfield where you were playing Chris Bryant, big move. But how big of a move is it? Because Maben is now going to be in the outfield with Hap and Schwarber, and Hayward, how much playing time is he actually going to get? Did you bring in a guy and use resources for down the road to bring in a defensive replacement? I don't think that was good. If they're going to play him every day because Maben is still an above-average center fielder, I think that's a very good thing for the Cubs. Um, I prefer Hayward in the corners. Um, I prefer Schwarber at DH. As well as he's played, he's still a converted catcher. So... The Cubs, another decent one. And bringing in Chaffin and Osich, if they can be big right now in the bullpen where the Cubs are hurting, that's an even better move. An even better move. Then we get to the New York Mets, my team. You can see the Big Recon logo with the Mets ball in it right back here. Uh, and, of course, the hat. The New York Mets went out and got catcher Robinson Chirinos, which they needed. They brought back fan and clubhouse favorite Todd Frazier. And, of course, right-handed pitcher Miguel Castro from the Baltimore Orioles. I'm saying this after Castro blew a game yesterday. I think giving up the 2019 Pitcher of the Year in the minor leagues was a dumb move. And I would have said this even when they made the deal, unless Castro was pitching well. Because the Mets need help in the bullpen. Edwin Diaz cannot pitch in the ninth inning unless it's a tie game and he's just trying to get the guys to the bottom of the ninth. He's blowing leads left and right. Familia has not been what we thought he would be when we brought him back two years ago. The rest of the guys have tried to pitch in, but when you're big guns, and then they had to move Seth Lugo into the rotation because of injury, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. And Michael Waka got lit up tonight. Um, they got the proven backup catcher in Chirinos. They get the lightning arm out of the pen because catcher has got a great arm. He wasn't a big strikeout guy till this year, but he has been striking dudes out. He's got to be able to. 
He's got to be able to execute pitches in back-to-back situations. Like yesterday, perfect example. JT Realmuto is the hottest hitter in maybe the National League right now. Um, and Castro got him to ground out to get him out at the plate in extra innings. And he had two strikes on Gene Segura, and he couldn't put him away. Segura hits a two-run homer. Mets did score a run in the bottom of the 10th, but they lost 9-8 after coming back from being down 6-0. It's a pretty big loss in a short season like this. Not a lot of time left. Not a lot of time left. Todd Frazier. I will say this. Todd Frazier is no longer what he was when he was in Cincinnati. He's not even what he was when he was with the Yankees or the White Sox. What Todd Frazier is, is that clubhouse gel guy that you need on every team that wins. He doesn't have to play every day. Here's the example I'll give. In 2016, when the Cavaliers were making their run to the playoffs and an eventual NBA champion, one of the people they brought in was Channing Frye. Is Channing Frye a 30-minute-a-night, lots-of-points-get-this-done type of player then? No, he was at the end of his career. But what Channing Frye was, was a good locker room guy. He was a good rotational guy. Frazier's the same thing. He's still got a little pop in that bat. He can still play some defense when you need him to. But he is not what he was in Cincinnati when he was hitting bombs left, right, and center. I would give the Mets a B- minus on their uh, trade deadline just because of what they gave up to get Miguel Castro. This is, a, this is an organization that five years ago, just five years ago, was boasting the best rotation in the major leagues two years early and making a run to a World Series that no one had them in. Think about it this way. And I'm going to bring this up for Tone if he, when he listens. Fun fact about the 2015 NLCS against the Cubs. The Cubs never led. The Met pitching was that good. So the trade deadline, while it was crazy because it was August 31st and not July because of when we started and all the moves we made, what a great day to be a baseball fan. And it was my last day off of work on vacation, so I got to follow everything right away. Um, so while it was a little muted because of everything else going on, the Major League Baseball trade deadline, as it always does, definitely brought the big moves, definitely brought the coverage it needed, and definitely brought the intrigue with the playoff push now fully on. Today is September the 8th. They're done. I think they have 16 more games. What's going to happen in 16 games? I don't know, but there's a lot of teams that got to make some games up that... You lose two or three in a row, you could be out of the playoffs. You win two or three in a row and you didn't think you were getting there, you may get there. Some current events for the New York Mets. As many have seen, the deal for Steve Cohen to buy the Mets is all but done. Steve Cohen will retain 95% of the New York Mets while the Wilpon family would get 5%. And today, the Shea family, so all of you don't know, When the Dodgers and Giants left New York, um, William Shea, a New York attorney, was hired by the city to find a way to get a team there. They were going to try and get a team to move to New York. And then, when the National League didn't want to expand, they basically started their own league called the Continental League. New York, Houston, Colorado, um, all teams at Minneapolis, St. Paul, they were all getting teams. So in other words, the roots for the Mets, the Rockies... The Minnesota Twins, the Houston Astros, all started there. So the National League expanded in 1962, 
bringing in the Houston Astros and bringing in the New York Mets. And they were the Houston Colt 45s back then. Um, so the Shays would like to own a piece of the New York Mets or be a part of the group. And I got to tell you something. If I'm them, I do it. That when you go to City Field, it's the Shea Bridge. When you go look up in the rat on the left field corner by the retired numbers, here is what sits there. You have 37 for Casey Stengel, you have 14 for Gil Hodges, you have 41 for Tom Sieber, you have 31 for Mike Piazza. You have a microphone with his year of birth and the year he died for Ralph Kiner. You have the 42 for Jackie Robinson, as all of Major League Baseball has. And you have the name Shea. Shea Municipal Stadium was named that way after Bill Shea, who helped bring National League Baseball back to New York. The Shea Bridge, of course, is built out in right center field. Every year to this day, the Shea family gives a horseshoe of flowers to the New York Mets on opening day. It was even there this year on July 24th. When I was there two years ago in the spring, I got to watch them give... Mickey Calloway in his first day as Met Manager. The Horseshoe of Flowers from the Shea family. Here's what I think this will bring the New York Mets. This will bring the New York Mets an owner who is going to spend money. But if he's got a brain in his skull, and I think he does because of the amount of money he's earned in his life, he needs to have a baseball man running baseball operations. He needs to do what Nelson Doubleday, as the majority stockholder in this team in 1980 when it was purchased, did when he hired Frank Cashin to rebuild the New York Mets. That is what needs to happen here. He needs to take over. They're not going to vote on this till the owners' meeting in November. When he takes over, he needs to hire a baseball man to run the baseball operations. Should he get rid of Brody Van Wagenen? I think... The jury's out on that. I don't think Brody is a bad GM. But I think Brody was hamstrung by a franchise that just would not do what he needed to do to win. And because he's had to be somewhat creative, I think Brody's made a few deals that have not helped the New York Mets win. It's funny to see Robinson Cano in a Met uniform. And we don't know what Jared Kalanick's going to be. I don't know if I make that deal. Me personally. Um, in hindsight, you probably do just because Edwin Diaz, if he was as good as he was in Seattle, the Philadelphia Phillies were in on him. And to keep him out of the division, sometimes you got to make that deal. I don't know if that was the one to do. So the Mets look like they're all but sold, which is going to give the fan base a new injection of a little bit of adrenaline. Hopefully we'll be able to, you know, to show it come opening day 2021. They have not played well. Um, of course, the night of the uh, Seaver episode, the day after we found out he passed away, Pete Alonzo hits a two-run walk-off shot against the Yankees. Um, they came back to win it. J.D. Davis, who was hit in the hip just a couple days before by Aroldis Chapman, hit an absolute laser beam to dead center. To, be, to tie the game in the ninth, and Alonzo hit a leadoff two-run homer, because of the rule, to win it for them in the tenth. Uh, they lost the first one of the Phillies and proceeded to win the next two, came back from six runs down yesterday, only to lose nine to eight. 
and they're getting smoked tonight by Baltimore. Yes, Baltimore. Right now, the Mets are in the bottom of the seventh inning. They are down 9-1. to one. I don't know if it's going to happen. So, we'll see what the next couple weeks bring. So, I want to end this episode on a historical note. For all those who don't remember because of all the controversy that has since come around it, 22 years ago today was a moment in baseball history that people are going to say, I know where I was then. I know where I was when this happened. I was sitting at Nick's house in his living room, looking at his gigantic projector screen television. When Mark McGuire hit number 62 off Steve Traxel, the Chicago Cubs, the shortest home run he hit all year in 1998, to become the first player to hit 62 home runs in a Major League Baseball season, breaking the record of 61 set by Roger Maris in 1961. We know what has happened since. We know the steroids and everything else. But at the time, 62 was such a romantic number that you really just felt a sense of pride, a sense of awe. Pride if you were a Cardinals fan, a sense of awe if you were just a baseball fan. Um... I can't begin to describe what I felt that night because I really can't remember because of all the stuff that's come out since. Um, I do remember being like, whoa, he did it. It was utter and total shock. But that was 22 years ago tonight. Number 62 by Mark McGuire. Of course, a few days later, Sammy Sosa would hit 62. A couple years later, Barry Bonds, of course, would break the home run record and hit 73. I think it was. It doesn't matter. It's been illegitimized, so forget it. In a lot of people's minds, the records are still 61 and 755. I almost said 714. That was rude. 25 years ago on Monday, as Chris Berman said during the game in the broadcast, Cal Ripken reached the unreachable star when he broke... Lou Gehrig's all-time record for most consecutive games played, and we watched in sheer awe and disbelief as the number 2131 was unfurled on the warehouse in right field in Baltimore. A moment that people say saved baseball after the strike of 1994. A moment that I honestly can tell you I prayed for rain. Now, any self-respecting baseball player as I was then, or fan is saying, Mike, why are you praying for rain? Here's why. Because their next game was that following Tuesday. That was a Sunday night. Was that following Tuesday in Cleveland. And 25 years ago today, I sat 12 rows off the Indians dugout with my father and one of my closest friends in high school. As a pop-up to third base came down in Jim Tomey's glove. And for the first time in franchise history, the Cleveland Indians won a division title. When I say people were not cheering... There were people who openly wept. I'm not kidding. There was a lady who had what I heard in a rumor, and I don't know if it's true, a bottle of champagne from 1948 or 54. It was one of the two. She popped it open. She poured it on the crowd. Cleveland had finally won. They would go on to the World Series that year, losing to the Atlanta Braves. But that night was something unlike anything I've ever felt in a ballpark. 
I was at Shea Stadium the day before they closed it when Santana threw the three-hitter. I went to see a bunch of games when I was living in Cleveland at the Jake. Since I've been back, I've been to a bunch of games in City Field. There was nothing like the Jake that night. It was anticipation that no one could ever understand. Starting the ninth inning, when they brought Jose Mesa in, who, by the way, unhittable in 95, 96, and 97. When they brought him in, they did the scene from Major League. They put the thing up on there when they knew Mesa was coming in, because Jose Mesa translated to English as Joe Table. They put a picture of a, a Joe at a table. And then all of a sudden, you hear Lou Brown go, Gimme Vaughn. And the place erupted. We cheered as loud as we could. I went to every Indians game I went to in the years I lived there with a Met hat on. But this was history. This was pretty cool. And as Tommy squeezed it, the roar from that crowd, the only other crowd I've ever heard roar like that was when David Wright hit the home run in Game 3 of the World Series at City Field in 2015. It was insanity. And it is something I can honestly say I will never forget that night. To see Cleveland finally win that, that was pretty cool. So, coming up, we got a few different shows we're going to be doing. On Saturday night, I will bring you my Week 1 Browns preview. With a little bit of what's been going on in the Big Ten at the end. But I will preview the Browns and Ravens for Sunday. Um, I'm going to try and do that each week. Either a preview or review each Browns game with the se- during the season. And then I'm also going to get into what's going to go on with the Mets at some point next week. Um, hopefully as more comes out about the Steve Cohen purchase, we will be able to figure out what's going to happen for the Mets going into the future. As always, Big Recon can be found on timeskew.com as a proud member of the Timeskew Podcast Network. Anchor, Google, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Breaker. Big Recon on Sports on YouTube, Big Recon on Sports on Facebook, at Big Recon on Sports on Instagram, and at Big Recon on Sport on Twitter. Keep an ear out. I'm going to be bringing in, as I said, the boys toward the end of the year to get into what we think is going to happen in the postseason, and hopefully all Chicago teams and one New York team will be in the playoffs. I will get into the Browns on Saturday night. Have a great week, everybody. I'll talk to you on Saturday. Take care now.